0: we basically would have these like online forums where we would drop each other's stuff. And I think I found that so helpful because when you're kind of looking at someone else's work with a critical eye, you then learn to apply it to your own work. And I think it really helps me with things like, okay, what questions do I want to be putting into the reader's mind at this stage like what information should they have and should they want to know and just all things like that and about how to keep that sense of suspense and also all the different ingredients i think it was just yeah really helpful
1: welcome to rights for women a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers i'm pamela cook women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast. So please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, Pam here. have got a great episode of Rights for Women coming up for you today with Meredith Jaffe, one of our favourite guest hosts, chatting to Amelia Hart about her debut novel, Wayward. And I'm hearing so many amazing things about this book. And after listening to this chat between Meredith and Amelia and hearing more about the book, it's definitely one that I am going to be adding to my reading pile and whizzing it to the top very soon. Amelia sounds like she is such an accomplished writer and the whole story of the book with three different timelines, a bit of a magical realism element and some amazing landscape description sounds absolutely fantastic. So you're going to have a really great time listening to this chat between Meredith and Amelia. I just thought I'd pop on because I'm not doing weekly episodes and getting into your ears every week, but I thought I'd just give you a little bit of a quick writing update on what is happening with me. As I announced a little while ago, I have signed a deal with Belinda Audio to have all of my backlist and two new books published by them in the coming kind of 18 months. And the first book that's coming out on audio is All We Dream. So that was the book that I revised. It was my second published book as Essie's Way. And then 18 months ago, I revised it. It's now called All We Dream. And I'm happy to say it has some lovely reviews out there. So thank you to everybody who has read that. But if you haven't read it or if you'd like to listen to it on audio, even if you have read it, it's currently up for pre-order. And I'll put the links in the show notes if you'd like to pre-order that. All We Dream, which will be out in May. in July my very first published novel Blackwattle Lake will be out on audio release and that's the most recent thing I've been working on. I've done a quick update and revision on Blackwattle Lake just to bring it into line with my current writing style and also to make sure that it will be written in a similar vein to the two follow-on books which I will soon be working on. I'm actually halfway through The second book, which is going to follow on from that called Out of the Ashes. And there will be a third book finishing off Eve's story, which will be out sometime next year. So it's really exciting to have some new work in process and to be getting some new books out there, certainly to have audio books out for the first time. And it's going to be fantastic to see how they're received and just to have my books circulating again and some new work out there, too. I've also got a novella coming out in October as part of the HarperCollins Christmas Vet Anthology and that will be out in October and there'll be more details about that soon because that will soon be up for pre-order and the cover will soon be released. The other thing that I've been very busy working on is my Turn Up Tension course and I'm almost at the end of the eight weeks with the first group going through that course and I'm so excited about the way that they have just really gotten into the course. We have a weekly Zoom call. They do the modules each week. There's bits of homework. And I'm getting comments like, this is the best writing course I've ever done. This is, you know, really improving my writing. I'm learning so much. So to hear that after putting, you know, a lot of work into really upgrading this course that I have taught numerous times before but have now really refined and deepened, and I'm just so happy with the way that it has turned out. And there's going to be a new course for that starting in May, on May 10th. So you can sign up for that now if you go to my website, pamelacook.com.au, go to courses there and find out more about that and how to sign up for that. So there's only limited numbers, and it would be great to have some Rights for Women listeners joining up to do Turn Up the Tension I also thought that I might start bringing you just a little weekly tip, something that is coming at the moment from the course. And in the first module that we do in the course is about openings and hooking the reader from the very opening of the book. So one of the things that we talk about is this idea of starting with a hook and, of course, starting immediately into the action, giving the reader something that's really going to raise their curiosity and have them asking questions, those subconscious questions that really are going to drive them through the rest of the story and have them wanting answers to those questions. One of the things that I do in the course is I use examples from a variety of genres, and one of the examples that we have in the first module, Openings with a Hook, is from Leanne Moriarty's book, The Husband's Secret. Many of you may have read that, and it's a fantastic book, one of my favourites of Leanne's. And this is the way it opens. It was all because of the Berlin Wall. If it wasn't for the Berlin Wall, Cecilia would never have found the letter and then she wouldn't be sitting here at the kitchen table willing herself not to rip it open. So even in those opening lines, we just have so much happening. There is this kind of friction and dissonance because we don't know what it is about the Berlin Wall. Is it the actual Berlin Wall? Is it something that happened at the Berlin Wall? what has the Berlin Wall got to do with the letter and why is Cecilia sitting there trying not to open it? Often if we get a letter, we think about ripping it open, but she's trying not to open it. So there's a whole lot in there that is hooking the reader, that is pulling us in and making us ask those questions at the subconscious level. So that's just one of the examples that uh, I use and there's plenty of other examples. I've used loads of examples in each module just to make sure that I cover all genres and have something there for everyone so stay tuned each week on rights for women at the beginning of each episode I'm going to be giving some little writing tips they might be from the course or they might be from blog posts or just thoughts that I have about writing and I'll be sharing those with you as we welcome our guest each week so grab a cuppa and I hope that you enjoy this interview with Meredith and Amelia
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Meredith Jaffe, and I'm thrilled to be taking over the convoy couch this week at Rights for Women to speak to do one of my all-time favourite things, which is to speak to authors. Today, I'm chatting with debut author Amelia Hart. Amelia is a British-Australian author. She was born in Sydney and studied English literature and law at the University of New South Wales before working as a lawyer in Sydney and in London. Amelia wrote her first novel, Wayward, during lockdown. And is also a graduate of the Curtis Brown Creative three-month online novel writing course, which we will delve into over the course of this conversation. Amelia was also highly commended in the twenty twenty-one Caledonia Novel Award. Her short fiction has been published in Australia and the UK. Amelia lives in London, and that is where she is speaking to me today. Good morning, or good evening, Amelia. Good morning, Meredith. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Absolutely, my pleasure. I have to tell all our listeners that I totally loved Wayward. It was recommended to me on stage at a Writers' Festival by another author, Jacqueline Marley, who was like, oh, I've read this book, Wayward. It's amazing. It's coming out next year. And I was like, hmm, we're with the same publisher. I might just drop an email (laughs) so I can get a copy. So, yes. So it's it came with high recommendations. So let's start by talking about your wonderful new novel, Wayward. First of all, what was your inspiration for the story?
0: That's such a great question, and thanks for all the lovely things that you've said about the book. It's so nice to hear that. So basically, I, as you said, I wrote Wayward in lockdown, and I think it was accumulation of a few different things. So firstly, during lockdown, I was living in Cumbria and that was my first experience of the English landscape, the English countryside, because I've mainly lived in London since moving here almost eight years ago. And I was really inspired by the kind of rugged beauty of the Cumbrian landscape, which I think I think it has a similar feeling to the Australian landscape in a way because it's much like harsher than what my expectations of the English countryside were. Yes, I was really inspired by that. But then at the same time, I learned that there was this dark history Like hidden beneath the beautiful landscape, which was the history of the witch trials that had happened nearby in Lancaster in 1612. So there were these very famous witch trials called the Pendle Witch Trials. They resulted in the deaths of eight women, mainly from two families headed by matriarchs. And they're quite notorious as one of the key examples of the kind of witch hunt and witch trial frenzy in England at the time. So I thought that contrast between beautiful landscape and this dark history was really interesting and then at the same time because it was locked down I was h- hearing a lot of media reports about increasing rates of domestic violence against women and I think I felt like there was this thread here of misogyny through the ages and so I wanted to examine that but also write something that was hopeful to showcase like female resilience. Mm. And it does all of that so I just
2: to give the readers the sense of that, or the listeners a sense of that. We're gonna can I go start by honing in on the three main characters. So the novel begins in 1619 with the prologue with the story of Alpha, and she's on trial for practicing witchcraft. So tell us a little bit more about her story and what kind of women were accused of witchcraft in the because the trials did span not particularly the Pendle trials, but that which trial being trialed for witchcraft is a century kind of long kind of experience for women, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that's maybe is partly why we're still so fascinated by it today because it went on for centuries, as you say, and obviously we can see that misogyny must have played a huge role, but it was something that kind of Happened in Catholic countries as well as in the Protestant, sort of Puritan countries that we might have the image of in our minds. So, my character, Alpha, in writing her, I was inspired by the you know, records of the sort of women who had been targeted. So women who lived like on the margins of their communities. So Alpha has grown up just with her mother. She doesn't have, she doesn't know who her father is. And they're very much being self-sufficient without a male head of household, which would have been something that would have drawn attention, negative attention at the time and so when we meet her in 1619 she's locked up awaiting transportation to Lancaster Castle which is where the trial will be held and she's only in her early 20s and so she's quite young and she's also lost her mother several years before so she's moving through the world alone and struggling with that need to be independent but also the kind of backlash that you would get As an independent woman at the time. Mm,
2: And I thought it was interesting with her story too that she's a healer and yet of course as anyone who is in a healing profession knows that is always fraught that there is also loss with healing and I think there's that. I got the really strong impression with Alpha that her mother had passed on not only the skill set but also the gravitas of such a position in society that people are relying on you in one of the most Times of great crisis. And I thought it really added a tenor to the stress that she's under in the novel that people were just as happy to call her when they really needed someone to be saved as they were to revile her for when she failed to save someone too. Don't you think there's that? I wondered how much that played into the witchcraft ideal.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that was definitely something I was thinking about because at the time, like traditional healing and what we would think of as like cunning women were really important to their communities because they did provide these natural remedies. And sometimes some of them would label themselves as almost practicing a sort of good witchcraft and they could protect you from the bad witchcraft. So it was really interesting that there was this tension there because then there was a risk in labelling yourself as having this ability because that could lead to accusations against you. And I think the community would rely on you, but also if you put a foot wrong, you were vulnerable. And then I thought it was also interesting that this was like a role traditionally associated with women, but then you also had, I guess, the rise of more like male, like physicians and very different approaches to medicine. I thought there was an interesting tension there that would be, useful to explore exactly then I was just curious though with the ideas
2: around misogyny in this particular case the Pendle witch trials to how much research did you you do around was it just oh I've never heard of this or I like what did you actually become a serious scholar on witchcraft there for a while? Um,
0: I did do. I'm not sure if I could describe myself as a serious scholar. I would be reluctant to do that. But yeah, I, I definitely did quite a bit of reading about the witch trials of that era and focusing on the Pendle witch trials. So one of the really strange sources that I read was this manuscript called The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster written in 1613 by Thomas Potts, who was the law clerk who witnessed the trial and was assisting the judges. And so he wrote this really lurid and obviously quite biased account of the trials. And I thought that was really interesting because obviously the women who were accused, it includes their statements and their confessions. And I just thought we know from what historians have uncovered today that those confessions might have been extracted under like coercive methods or torture, and so I thought I really wanted to like take a character in a similar situation and give her like her own voice. No, it was really interesting. So the second character that we meet is
2: Violet. She lives on her father's estate. The novel picks up her story in 1942 when she's 16. So just tell us where Violet fits into this story.
0: Sure. When we meet Violet, as you say, she's cloistered away, but she doesn't let that kind of dampen her curiosity about the outside world. So Violet has grown up in this isolated manor house, Orton Hall, under the thumb of her father and with a younger brother, Graham, who she used to be quite close to, but they've drifted apart as he's gone to boarding school and they're leading very different lives because hers is much more secluded. And as well as having this intense Curiosity about the natural world, she's also very curious about her mother who she knows nothing about. So the only thing she has of her is a locket, a pendant with a W inscribed in it that she's not really supposed to have this. Her nurse gave it to her against her father's wishes. And so there's this kind of curiosity and this need to know more about her mother and what her relationship with her father was like, and that really drives the story forward for Violet but she's also because she's 16 obviously there's a lot of change around that time and that is relevant to the story as well when she comes into contact with one of her male relatives who's been who's taking leave from the fighting in North Africa.
2: And I think the other thing too that is important about Violet's story is not only is she effectively cloistered away with just the serving staff and her father and her brother but her brother is both her brother and her are under a father's thumb in different ways because of their gender and also that, that her father is a violent or at the very least a bully, but, but a, in a bordering violent man. So he's ruling through fear and rather than he's not a loved and respected figure, shall we put it that way. <laughs> so I
0: thought that was yeah. a
2: really interesting contrast too. Yes,
0: yeah, thank you. Yes, I really wanted to... So, with the character of her father, I was really thinking about the sort of 40s being in the sort of dying days, really, of the British Empire. And so I wanted him to be someone who was very like imperialist in his outlook in terms of how he thought about the world around him and also about his own family. So he's very controlling, but he has ideas about what women should and shouldn't do. And he also has another reason for keeping Violet locked away, which is you know, not just his ideas about gender, but about something else. So it's potentially that he might be afraid of her. But I won't say more because that no, can be I know scary. it's like it's we're both skirting around what we know happens. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs>
2: we got to give the reader something. Yeah, there's a you really good say. thing that happens. Well, a bad good thing. <laughs> yeah. Our third character is the contemporary storyline and that's with Kate who's, I think we can say this, Kate is fleeing a violent relationship. It's very upfront that Kate's fleeing a violent and controlling man and I guess my question to you as writer to writer is uh, what were you trying to achieve in terms of balancing the story by having those three threads and Kate's story as the contemporary story that I guess a lot of us would feel familiar with, sadly, of women in uh, aggressive and violent relationships and how that functions
0: today. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what you're trying to do there? Yeah, so I think what was at the forefront of my mind was this sense that although obviously women are no longer being put on trial for witchcraft not here anyway, thankfully, I just felt as though things have changed but they haven't changed as much as they need to. And so for me, I felt as if a kind of prevalence of like domestic violence and violence against women carried out by men and the kind of not just that but also sexual assaults figures, I just felt as though this is in a way like this misogyny that's evolved and it's become insidious. We've had this idea that we've banished it but actually it's still there, like it's in our homes. And so I think that was what I wanted to capture. I just wanted to kind of plant that seed of how far have we really come? Yeah, and just on that note, so there are several threads that tie the
2: women together across the storyline, no spoilers, folks. And and obviously misogyny is was something that was playing on your mind, but I was also curious whether this was something that... Like, I'm just, I guess I'm doing a chicken or the egg kind of question. Is this something that revealed itself to you how strongly these themes were evolving in their writing and editorial process? Was it something that was inspired by the Pendle Witch Trials, but then you then sought? characters who could exemplify it through the ages? Like how did that process work for you? Because I know sometimes some people say you should not start with themes, you should start with character, and others say, but you need to know your overarching themes to exemplify. So how did you go about this with your novel, with
0: Wayward? So I think really I guess it was just the initial idea, having in the background, having... You learned a little bit about the Pendle Witch Trials and having the kind of background setting of the pandemic and those news stories in particular about domestic violence. And also the broader ideas about the sense of being confined, but also having escaped something because I was not in London, I was in the countryside, but I was still confined. I couldn't, I could only leave the house for an hour a day. I couldn't travel back to australia obviously for some quite some time i think i had this these ideas about confinement and escape in my head and i just had this image of this woman like fleeing something fl- fleeing a situation of confinement escaping To somewhere in Cumbria to this cottage that she'd inherited and then connecting with a much older story. So it very much started with, you know, that Kate, she was the first character that came to me. And then I knew that I always knew I wanted it to be about like a legacy of female power. And then, so then Alpha emerged and then I realized I needed someone to tie the two women together because they were so far apart in time. It just wouldn't be feasible or would be much harder to create those natural intersections in the story and then so with Violet I mean she's in in a very extreme example of seclusion but I was also thinking even if she hadn't been living this life her options would still have been very limited and it's interesting because World War II is obviously a time when that was starting to change for women um yeah I guess (laughs) That's a very long-winded answer to your question. No, it's not. It's not at all.
2: (laughs) And the other thing that really struck me when I was reflecting on this to write my questions for today was the misogyny and male power question and then the reassertion of female power. But the reassertion of female power is very strongly linked to that sense of self, isn't it? Each woman has to confront her true nature, find their true nature in order for them to evolve And change which is obviously the necessity in a novel for character to change and what were you thinking about in that respect in terms of your themes and the characters?
0: Yeah that's a great question because I think obviously there is like a kind of magic realism element to the book and that ties in with that sense of reclaiming yourself and rediscovering your own power and so I wanted that their sort of ability to be, or their close connection with nature. I wanted that to be representative just of that idea of finding your own strength. And so, for instance, like with Kate as a character, she's someone who even before she was in this controlling relationship, she had a trauma in her early life. And that led to a kind of a repression of her sense of self and a disconnect with who she is. And I think as something that then made her like more vulnerable. And so I wanted to use this idea of this inherited legacy as a symbol of I guess like just the strength that any woman might find within herself to be assertive and independent. Mm.
2: The other really important element of Wayward is the landscape of the story and as we discussed before, you wrote Wayward in Cumbria, but I'm really quite interested in how landscape is used as character and A, did you do that deliberately or B, was it just one of those wonderful accidents of life that you were in this amazing place that just infiltrated the writing Or, or maybe then that's what did happen but then you went, hang on a minute.
0: I could make landscape a character. How did all this happen for you? Yeah, it definitely was something that I drew out more in editing with my editors trying to really capture the different faces of the landscape, like the changes in season, so that there was like a degree of contrast. But also I think just have experiencing this new connection with nature myself, as I think a lot of people were during lockdown whether it was like your local park or your garden or like the local wilderness if you have access to it that was like something that I found like quite restorative and regenerative and so I think it was already quite prominent in the draft but then it was something that I did consciously try to draw out and make it feel like a character so I'm really happy that you feel as if it was (laughs) well and not everyone can
2: write landscape I've there's a whole, as you probably are discovering too, you meet so many different writers and everyone has their strengths and weaknesses and or yeah. their the things they love doing and things they don't love doing. Perhaps it might be a better way of putting it. But yeah, landscape can be really problematic for some people. And so I'm always aware when I read a novel. For me, scene setting is such an important thing. But landscape is only one way of doing that. But I was just curious, was it I wonder if you would have written landscape? at all let alone so evocatively if you hadn't if you'd written in London
0: and not Cumbria yeah you think? It's, it's really interesting I'm having this struggle now because I'm writing my second book and I think I'm not writing it in the place that it's set and it is hard you having to look at Google Earth and stuff like that yeah. and it, it's hard to capture those things like What something smells like, and like what the air tastes like, it's hard to capture that when you're not physically there. And so I think it was like a really lucky accident for me that I ended up there, and I was I really needed to do something to escape from (laughs) the world. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and also so my like daily like hour walk or run through the landscape was like then really closely linked to actually doing the drafting.
2: Yeah.
0: So just going back to the practicalities
2: now of writing writing a novel in lockdown. So were you also having to work at, as a lawyer at the same time you're writing? Is it just one of those situations where suddenly I had all this free time on my hands that I didn't usually have kind of scenarios?
0: Uh, not exactly. So I was working for the government at the time and I was involved a little bit in the pandemic response. So it was Longer hours than usual. But because I was working remotely, that did give me like the commuting time that I didn't in the mornings. I had this hour that I hadn't had before. And it didn't matter that I was working like later into the evening because I guess I just thought, okay, I have an hour. I can wake up early and I'm just going to write a thousand words before I start work every day until I have something that looks like a book.
2: And, 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 think, and had you started writing any of it before you went to Cumbria? No, okay. And then no, no. in this process, did you decide to do the Curtis Brown Creative three-month course, how to write your novel?
0: So I had already written the novel, so I had a first draft that I'd gone over a few times. But I think writing can be so lonely, as you probably know, and it's so helpful to get feedback From other people and i also knew like curtis brown had such a wonderful reputation and i'd heard great things about their courses and so i just thought oh i'll just apply you never know maybe i'll get in and i actually so this was when i was living in london again so i had it was six months later and tinkering with this draft. I actually sent in the application form like with mistakes in it, like I sent the wrong version then had to reset it. So it's really lucky they <laughs> accepted it. <laughs> I'm like, if I hadn't realised, my life could be quite different now. They <laughs> <laughs> might
2: have set you back, again. we take you through this course, but how would you like
0: to do our proofreading course? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I sent one that had because I love working with track changes, but then I often like turn, or you can turn it off so that you can't see it but it's still in the document and I didn't realise I'd done that. So it was just like covered in red, and, oh, anyway. <laughs> Luckily it was
2: okay. <laughs> so just for the listeners who aren't aware of this, you have to apply to do the three-month novel writing course at Curtis Brown and you therefore yeah, you have to present a portion,
0: like how many words of your work? I can't remember exactly. I think it was about 3,000, the first 3,000, and then I think maybe a synopsis as well yeah so i you do have to like it is like auditioning and then so i would imagine though that in terms
2: of the practical craft skills that you're learning on the course and going oh gosh i didn't realize that i've just done that through my entire novel all those magic moments but i imagine because you've all had to apply to get onto, how many
0: people are on the program at, at a time so I think for my course, cause, which was online, I think it was like about, I want to say around 10. Oh, gosh, um, it's really small still. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But I was going to say, because the advantage would be that you've all won the prize, as it were, that you've been accepted onto the course. So that it's is it quite collegial in the way that it's taught?
0: Yeah, de- definitely. So it's all about feedback and giving feedback on like your classmates' work. And so we did our tutor, who was Susanna Dunn, who is herself, she's like a wonderful writer and she was an amazing tutor. But we basically would have these like online forums where we would drop each other's stuff. And I think I found that so helpful because when you're looking at someone else's work with a critical eye, you then learn to apply it to your own work. And I think it really helps me with things like, okay, what questions do I want to, to be putting into the reader's mind at this stage? Like what information should they have and should they want to know? And just all things like that and about how to keep that sense of suspense and also all the different ingredients. I think it was just, yeah, really helpful. Okay, and so
2: I'm sure everyone also wants to know. So you do the three-month online course, which anyone from Australia can do as well for anyone who's listening that's the advantage of online. So you do the three-month course. How does this sort of wrap up? Like I'm imagining because it's Curtis Brown Creative that you've got an entree into having the manuscript uh, looked at by an agent, one of the London-based agents. Can you just take us through from from, I finished the course on this day and then the things that happened between that and publication? in terms of getting an agent, finding a publisher, seeing the book go into the process?
0: Yeah, sure. How it normally works is basically when the course is finished, the agents at Curtis Brown's office in London are sent like a portfolio with different samples of everyone's work in it. Which they read, and so I think a lot of a lot of authors have then had agents approach them off the back of that. But for me, I mine was like a little bit different because I entered this Caledonian Novel Award Prize, and then when I got shortlisted, I told Curtis Brown about it, and then they were like, "Oh, would you like us to send?" send on your manuscript to one of the agents. Anyway, like they'll have a sample, we can just send the whole thing. So yeah, and then that was how they connected me with Felicity, which was amazing. She's so brilliant. I still can't believe she's my agent. <laughs> and then she and I did quite a bit of work together, I'd say for about two or three months. We did some edits together, especially a lot of edits to Kate's storyline because that was the one that I struggled with the most. I think because it's, it was contemporary and didn't have that escape element that the ones in the past might have had. And, yeah, so we did some work together and then she sent the book out on submission and then, yeah, I had an offer from Bara and, yeah, I was thrilled, thrilled to accept. How long from, for, for,
2: again, for people who are listening in, so from the moment you started writing Wayward to when you signed your publisher contract, how long was that period?
0: It was about a year, which I know is, like,
2: unusually short, yeah. Very short. And yeah. then between when you found out about the Caledonia Award and that and getting the contract with the publisher, like how long was that process then? Maybe like three or four months. Wow. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's a really unusual story. Good to know. We all like to hear that, the unusual yeah. stories. And I guess my other question for you out of this experience is what did you feel that you gained in terms of like at the end of the writing editing process for this book what have you taken with you into the what your current book that you're working
0: on so I think yeah that's a really interesting question because I think although I definitely learned so much I think every book is really different and I'm having a really different experience with book two, which I think is often the case. So I've been rewriting it and rewriting it quite a lot. I think because with your first book, sometimes it's that you're hit with this idea and then you write the idea and it might not be quite right and there might need to be a lot of work, but it's, you're starting with that kernel initially, but then if you're under a contract, then it's like you have to write to find the idea. So it's quite a different process. But can I can think- stop you there. So you've got a two book contract for when you yes. signed
2: up with your publisher?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> Sorry. I should have said, explained that. But yeah. So I think something that I forgot a lesson from writing Wayward that I forgot when I was doing the earlier versions of book two was because I'm writing historical fiction again and I want to again look at like female stories and it's something that is again quite it's quite a harrowing episode of history and I think what I did with Wayward was I was able to look at that and make it readable and palatable by adding in this element of magic realism And the mystery and so I in my early drafts I forgot to do that and so it made like the writing of the book quite depressing (laughs) but I think I've now I think I have a handle on it so it's okay but yeah there'd be so many I would I've learned so much also things like sense of place I think that's so important and for me as a writer that's something I think I need to have a place that the story kind of converges around and so yeah that's something that I'm trying to do again And tell me, are you still in a feedback group with your cohorts from the creative writing course? I'm not currently with but I am with a couple of other novelist friends, one of whom also did the course, although a different stage to me. And we often, so there's three of us, and we often send each other our work. And I think, like, sharing work is so helpful. Like, you can't be objective, (laughs) about what you've written it's so hard like I find that really hard so I'm always like to everyone in my life I'm like please read this.
2: (laughs) It's kind of the double-edged sword though isn't it because when you're published you feel really naked oh my god the book's out there everyone's going to see me for who I truly am.
0: (laughs) Yeah it's really hard I'm finding it's 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 a really interesting experience and I think it's hard to be prepared for what that feels like. Yeah and I think I don't know like
2: I don't think it changes that much from whether you've published one book or maybe when you get to 10, maybe you just become really blase about the whole thing. But I think it's always that moment because you're working so hard on the manuscript so intensively for such a long period of time and then it goes to print and then there's nothing to do and then, oh, my God, and now um, it's coming out.
0: <laughs> and then
2: you, have to- you were released in obviously in Australia and the UK. Where else has the book been released so far? So, it was
0: published in the US last week. Uh-huh. And then there will also be some translated editions as well, which well are coming done out. You. That's
2: amazing. You. And also, Thank therefore, you. no pressure on the second book, which is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, <definitely. laughs> so, with your writing this time around, the other thing I wanted to ask you were are you in a position where you can? dedicate more time to your writing or are you still trying to snatch that hour in the morning for a thousand words
0: so I'm currently just writing which I'm very lucky to be able to do but I think it is interesting because I've always had the routine of like full-time work and now I have to create my own routine (laughs) Mm. which is really hard uh so yes but I still try and do if I'm in like a drafting stage, I try and have a threshold of a word count to reach, and I because I'm I have more than an hour now, like it's higher, it's more than a thousand words. But yeah, so I think everyone has to do that. It's either a time
2: constraint or a word count constraint, because otherwise, but, there's so many other ways you can procrastinate you <laughs> know, rather than and- face
0: the page, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah, ex- exactly. It's really hard. That's you have to just push through. So that's what I'm trying. What I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm sure you'll get there. Everyone has the one thing I've learned over all these years is everyone has such different routines and different ways of tackling the beast that is making yourself face the page, <laughs> face the computer yeah. screen. And do you have a pet or anything? So you, you can't take a dog for a walk or anything to get the muse no. working.
0: No, I don't have a pet, sadly, but I do. I love running. That That's what I do if I'm stuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, running. I run and then I try and think. Or I think a few people say this, but I often have like really good ideas in the shower. Mm. I don't know why this is a thing. <laughs> and running works these-
2: because it's meditative. You can actually yeah. just let your brain, you can switch off your active brain and just let the subconscious, with all that lovely oxygenated blood flowing through you. <laughs> To to do it the way, exactly.
0: Yeah, and I, I think I feel like for me the two are really linked because, like, it's about stamina or something. Like you need stamina to run and also to finish writing a book.
2: That's right. They say writing a novel is right, running a marathon, several marathons. Yeah, you do need stamina. Haven't done a marathon yet. (laughs) (laughs) Amelia Hart, thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening for you this morning for me on the combo couch congratulations on Wayward. i truly loved it it's a fantastic novel and i can't wait to read the next book to find out more about amelia and her writing one thing i did say you can find her on twitter at emily amelia hart books but i
0: couldn't find a website for you if you've not got a website i haven't got one aha uh-huh. so something i procrastinated on but i am on twitter on that handle and also on Instagram, the same Instagram. handle. Fantastic. <laughs> so going, it was so unusual these
2: days. You go, oh, that's not, am I looking up the wrong thing? So, yes, if you want to connect with Amelia Hart Books and talk to her, I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. So, Amelia Hart Books on Twitter and Insta. And, of course, Waywood is available wherever you buy your good books from and your local library. Amelia Hart, thank you. Thank you
0: so much for having me. Thank it's you. Absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w 4 the Facebook page, Writes for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.